0: We have a much more diverse workforce than we've ever had, and it's going to continue to become more diverse. So in leading and managing people and understanding what, how to motivate people differently, that's a different set of skills.
1: On today's episode, we learn from professor, author, and former Navy pilot, Dave Smith. As he shares the importance of mentorship, inclusive leadership, and the role of allyship in the workplace, we also dive into how self-awareness and humility are vital in this rapidly evolving world. Let's get started on Leadership Unboxed with Dave Smith. Thanks for joining me today thanks for having me good to be here
0: with you and all your listeners
1: we appreciate it now can you tell us a bit about your experience in the military what were some of the more memorable
0: moments or takeaways for you yeah happy to so i spent a little over 30 years in the uh, in the navy most of that as a navy pilot in the first 20 plus years there and the last 10 years or so as a professor at the Naval Academy in, in Annapolis. So a little bit of diversity in terms of some of the experience there at the beginning of the career and the end of it. I look back on the leadership opportunities I had, and especially I think back to my f- first tour as a, as a pilot in the squadron and thinking about the, the world was obviously a little different then. My first deployment was to Adak Alaska, in the Aleutian chain, which was the end of the Cold War. 1989. So it was a very different time. It's what we had trained and what we had known, kind of known the world to be at that point, but a very different deployment from where we, the rest of my deployments I had. The following one was to, was to the Gulf and for Desert Storm. And so again, a very different world at that point and things shifting dramatically. But I think one of the things I took away from those years in my first tour as a pilot, from a leadership perspective, were really the opportunities I had to to lead and to manage people and resources at that point in ways that I I just don't know that I would have had the same opportunities in the civilian world. Whereas the military, in many cases, kind of puts you right out there once once you're qualified and trained, expects you to be able to do those and gives you the opportunity to you know, to try and to learn and yeah, you're going to make some mistakes along the way as well. And you'll learn from those and become better at it. But I think that was one of the early takeaways I had was just that I didn't really understand maybe then as I do now, looking back at the incredible opportunities I had to lead and to have full responsibility and accountability for, uh, for a crew and a maintenance detachment and an aircraft and to be able to, again, have those opportunities? I think early on in my career was something that gave me, I think, some one of the experiences to to venture and try other things, but also, I think the confidence that hey, I can I can do this, and, and to build upon that moving forward. But uh, that was, I think, one of the the early experiences I had.
1: That's great. Yeah, it sounds like you were given a lot of opportunities early on. To kind of stretch and learn did you have any mentors along the way and how did they impact your growth and development in taking some of those responsibilities yeah definitely
0: wouldn't be wouldn't have been you know where i was when i finished my career or where i am today without other people kind of standing on their shoulders and having people you know i think really giving some great advice and in some cases and in other cases opportunities to do things and and Again, I think one of those was in the community I, I was flying in uh, for the for the P3 aircraft that I flew, which is a multi-person aircraft. We had a crew of 13 back then and we would be on detachments around the world in different places often by yourself. And again that's where those leadership opportunities often came up but in many cases those crews had a more senior officer on board and as the mission commander of the crew and in charge of the maintenance detachment and everything that went with that but i was one of just a small handful of junior officers who had who had who was the senior person for the crew and for the maintenance detachment and again recognizing I look back now and I well what a unique opportunity. And somebody saw something and the ability to give me the, the opportunity to do these things. and not everybody got that. And again, I, I look back at mentors who uh, coached me and guided me along the way and were working with me and, and setting me up for those things as as my career advanced. but those those experiences were things that made a huge difference later on in my career. As I, because I had experiences and the ability to, to leverage those into other parts of my career. Specifically, there were a few that, in one case, they, you know, they started off, you know, more as kind of your your boss, and and they were people that you got more performance feedback from, and maybe some guidance along the way as well. But later on, when they were no longer my boss, that they were still there and they were still checking in with me and, and very interested and kind of had me on their, kind of had me on their agenda or their radar for thinking about opportunities, things that were coming up, checking in to see where, how things were going in my career, where there were opportunities for them to just be aware of what I was doing and what might be available next in my career. So yeah, mentors made a, I think a, a a huge difference. We were never part of any formal mentoring programs. It was all very kind of grassroots, informal, just kind of connecting with people. But I felt like I was very fortunate that people took uh, interest in me and, and my career, and and being there to help me make. I think not just good decisions, but look at look at options and look at those decisions and what the You know what the ramifications and consequences might be of choosing one thing over another when there was opportunity for for choice absolutely
1: and you mentioned at first that you had more of a formal working relationship but then over time informally staying in touch that can be difficult how did you maintain that what's your advice for folks who are looking to be better at staying connected
0: it's an interesting challenge i think in some ways but remembering that for both the the mentee or the protege, that you're part of a relationship, and if you view it as a relationship, that means that you are fifty percent of it, and that you have responsibility to do your part. Understanding it could be challenging because, especially if you're dealing with much more senior people, there's obviously some power difference there, and they're busy people, and we don't, you know, we don't want to be impinging upon their time and feeling like we're taking away, but. I think that's where it's important for the senior person or the mentor in this case to to make it clear that um, what the expectations are, where if there are boundaries, where where are those boundaries in terms of connection and communication over time, whether that's trying to do some sort of a more formal scheduling of opportunities to reconnect. Sometimes I think, again, with more grassroots informal mentoring that just kind of evolves a little bit and and it's a lot of personal preference between the the mentor and the mentee and how they how they like to communicate or how they like to do things. Sometimes you have a connection and different activities or reasons why you might be getting together in a variety of settings and leveraging those, those opportunities to to reconnect. And because again, I think things are changing quite rapidly in people's careers maybe more so today than than ever, things are continue to speed up. So if they're keeping you kind of on their agenda and thinking about opportunities for you or what's next and where there might be a, oh, you know, hey, I just saw this, this opening coming up, Uh, this might be something you'd be interested in. So keeping you in mind, it's helpful to stay on somebody's radar. And so, again, I don't think there's one way to do that. I think many people just based off personality and preferences and communication styles, And the connection that you have the type of relationship you have with your mentor might might really begin to define what that looks like for you i think those are extremely wise words
1: it sounds like you know it's a relationship right it's a two-way relationship as you're mentioning so having those guardrails and those expectations in place early on i can see that helping thank you now i'd like to ask you about your transition from service to more of a role in academia and research. How did you decide on that move?
0: Higher ed had always been something that I think since my bachelor's degree, my undergrad work, I think something that I had kind of in the back of my mind that, you know, I really enjoy different aspects of this. And there might be an opportunity to do something with this in the future from a career perspective. At the time of my undergraduate work, I was focused on my Navy career, and so being the best I could be in terms of being a Navy pilot and a leader and an officer and managing my career in that way. It wasn't until later in my career in the military that I saw, as I went back for my master's degree, um, again, it was a great exposure into other disciplines. That was my first introduction into some of the behavioral sciences, thinking about psychology and sociology. That really kind of piqued my curiosity into what I could do with that moving forward, and so again, just kind of filing these things away about I can't do anything or I don't want to do anything with it right now, but down the road, there's I, I think this could be an opportunity depending on what other what other options I want to entertain at that point. And as it turned out, when I was at about the nineteen twenty year mark of my career, after I had had command of the squadron, and I was working in the Pentagon at the time. And I, I had, it had been brought to my attention, this program that we have with the service academies, including the Naval Academy, or what they call the Permanent Military Professor Program, where they send senior officers back for the, to finish their, their graduate work, PhDs. And then they go back to the service academies to teach for the rest of their, until they're required to retire. And I was thinking to myself, you know, wow well here was here's kind of a great opportunity to to leverage some of the the experience I had from a leadership perspective of what I've been doing, combine it with my academic interests and career, and then use that in an educational program like the Naval Academy in this case, their leadership ethics and law department where I taught for seven years was a combination of many disciplines we had sociologists psychologists and then we had from an ethics and philosophy side of things that was the ethics side and then of course lawyers judge advocate generals who who taught the law side of that but to me I was like oh okay the connection back into sociology the behavioral sciences was really interesting and to think about a lot of the challenges we were facing in the military at the time in terms of people and resources and managing careers and leadership, I was like, well, there's a great connection here and opportunity. So so I applied for the program, was picked up, then went back to the University of Maryland for my Ph.D. program in sociology and studying military sociology, which was a very helpful way to think about how do countries broadly assess, you know, bring people into the military? How do we recruit, do that recruiting piece? And then how do we manage the military, and the relationship we have with our government, our society more broadly, and thinking about the civil military aspects of that. And then on my other expertise was around social psychology. But one of the things that I was most interested in was really from a family's perspective and military families, again, having grown up in a military family as a, as a kid. And then for myself, my own career, having a a partner, a wife who was a career naval officer, being dual career military couple, a lot of there were a lot of challenges with managing families and, and military careers and looking to explore that a little deeper. And so that was a great opportunity for me as part of my my program at the University of Maryland before for going there. And back to the, kind of the mentoring component of this, that one of the things that was really important for me was my my advisor, Dr. Mady Siegel, was my mentor there, obviously, as my advisor in a very specific role, and today continues, even though she's retired, to be you know, a great mentor for me as well. Some of the things I learned about mentoring from her that I thought were really interesting, one was... She was great at challenging me, and and certainly here I am, you know, a little bit older of a graduate student at this point. I'm pretty advanced in my in my military career at that point too, and learning a whole new world of study around sociology and and how to do research in, in the social sciences. And it was great at ch- kind of challenging me on assumptions that I had about who I was, what I was doing, what did I need to learn, and things like that. And and I really appreciated that from her her ability to kind of push me in in those, those kind of ways. The other thing that was really clear later on in in our relationship, she opened a lot of doors and it was always kind of interesting and and a little bit kind of off-putting and maybe a little bit of imposter feelings. You know, you get the sense that when we would be at conferences and things and presenting research and more senior people talking to us about the work and they would ask questions to her about the research and she would defer to me and she would say, you know, I, I can answer, I could tell you what I, what I know, but you know, my, my data, my research is a little bit older. David here is doing this right now and is doing the cutting edge work. And, you know, I think you, what you need to do is you really need to talk to him about this. And it was just kind of that, you get that kind of imposter feelings right away. I was like, Ooh, who, who are they to be talking to me and who am I to be talking to them about my research at that point? So it was always kind of interesting to see how she was a great connector to other people, people who were influential, influential in my academic career as I'm now, you know, as I was beginning to, to move into that world. And it was important to make those connections with those people. And that those people saw me as being a valued person and researcher and academic because she was kind of sharing her you know, her own social capital because she was associating me with her at that point. So really, it was really quite a lesson to watch some of that happen. It's great to be
1: connected to folks who see the potential in you and offer that chance to shine and show what you've got to step up and share some of the resources that you had. Now, I did want to circle back to one of the things that you mentioned earlier around ethics and leadership. In today's world, there's a lot of information out there when you're looking at news, or even within organizations, how do you approach distilling information, uncovering bias, and ultimately using the information to make decisions?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's something that I've always emphasized to my own students that I think as one as researchers, as academics, I think it's incumbent upon us to, you know, to be critical of information and where it's coming from the source because again most of it is biased in some way and recognizing that that's just that's the way the world is and and even research is biased in a variety of different ways it's to me it's more about how transparent are researchers or people who are talking about this and putting that information out there how transparent are they about where what those biases could be and so we we can make good judgments about the application or the utility of of information, of research, of data, of evidence, and how it applies in that way. And so I've always been a, a proponent of being a good critical consumer of information. And that I think that goes for for all citizens of any country, uh, whatever you do, you should be a good critical consumer of information and and looking at it not just at face value but also thinking a little more deeply about okay what are the what are the perspectives the biases here that could be playing into this again not that it's not valid it's just that again all information tends to have a bias of some sort and so i think being learning to be good critical consumers of information is something that we we could all use and i think is especially important for those of us who are doing research and producing evidence in working with data out there that we we understand how far we can go with it, you know, again, how much how how much we can generalize with that information, what kind of settings does it apply in, context does it apply in? And being, again, I think being the more transparency we can build into that, the better that is for everybody in using that information.
1: Thanks for that. We're gonna switch gears and talk about some of your work, which focuses on inclusive leadership, allyship and gender in the workplace. What inspired you to make this a central focus of your research and some of your teachings?
0: Yeah, this goes back a ways. I think about experiences that have influenced me in, in working in this area. One goes back to my early days of being a student at the Naval Academy. And for the, it was the first time, it was kind of an eye-opening experience, first time that I'd ever been in an environment where where men were the majority. And a significant majority, because back then it was less than ten percent women as part of our student body. And you know, I had come out of high school programs where, in many cases, there were a lot of classes, especially the, the AP classes and things like that, where women were actually a majority in those classrooms, and and were <laughs> were often the the most brilliant ones there. And so that had kind of that was kind of my. My baseline, my foundation to think about that. And then coming to the Naval Academy and suddenly they're a minority, there's just outright discrimination. This is back in the early eighties, outright discrimination toward them. And I mean, bias doesn't just, doesn't get you all the way there. The, the prejudice and discrimination that went against them was very overt at that point. And just thinking to myself, it's like, wow, what did I get myself into? This is just a very different world. And it's, and, but also sensing a lot of that fairness, lack of fairness and justice that goes with that. And why would anybody treat others that way? And I think later on in my career, as, as I got into my flying career, this was, not, again, more early experiences, having these conversations with my, with my wife about her experiences and how she faced things that I never saw and had a harder time finding access or people to, to be mentors. And it just and people just didn't come up and, and that wasn't just something that they did and and so thinking about those and, and thinking I was like wow I wonder if that's affecting other people that I work with in the same way and looking back into my own my own unit my own squadron and and finding some of the connections of those same experiences and it's like well it's not just her this is actually much more widespread and thinking about how that's hurting the mission, the job that we're doing out there. We're not getting the most out of our people. We're not getting the most out of our teams and our missions out there. And that goes against everything that we stood for. But it was widely accepted, just widely accepted across, I think, most of the military at that point. And then fast forwarding, when I got the opportunity in grad school then to pick my research topic, at that point, there was a lot of opportunity to look at the experiences of, of dual career couples, but look at it from a gender perspective in both the workplace and in family and looking at how decision-making was done and how career paths were were affected and, and how that affected outcomes that we were looking at at the time. And so that was a lot of it. But I, I will go back to one other thing about my, my mentor, Dr. Siegel. And this is one of the other ways that she challenged me. And I remember taking a course with her at one point, and we would have these conversations afterwards about um, some of the some of the challenges in, inside the organization and how the organization was supporting those in different ways, very kind of implicitly, but also how in, individuals, many of us who thought we were we were the ones who were great allies and supporters of. Of more inclusion in the military, we're we're actually, because of our language and maybe some of our behaviors, we're actually, we're still part of the problem. And and we didn't understand it. We didn't see it. And she pointed Mm -hmm. to me and gave me a couple of examples of how I did that. And I was like, I was just flabbergasted. I was like, what? Me? No, no, that's not, I'm not. (laughs) I'm I'm one of the good guys here. And And she's like, well, you ought to think about that a little bit. And grad school is a great time to to get to do some reflection and introspection. And I did. And I was like, you know, she's absolutely right. And I have work to do. And, and to me, that was, a, that was a real turning point in terms of doing this work was accepting that, hey, you're not perfect. You're not always going to get it right. And you have a lot to learn on the way that you're never going to you don't actually reach a destination with when it comes to inclusive leadership and allyship but more along the journey of learning and sharing with others what you're learning along the way and so that was a big that was a big point for me in terms of the research focus the types of problems i've studied across my academic career and what got me at the point i don't know a few years after that to partner with my my co-author and co-conspirator Brad Johnson to work on this and, and to write books and do research around this topic, and and it's been a it's been a great journey. We've continued to make mistakes and continue to learn along the way, but uh, but now have a broader audience to be able to share that with. And back to understanding your own privilege and how people will let you in the door and listen, and using that for good. In this case, to to get people again to kind of question themselves and their organizations in the same way that we did for for me.
1: Thanks. You mentioned Good Guys. And for those who aren't familiar, your books, Good Guys and Athena Rising, explore the importance of male allies in the workplace. Can you expand a bit more on the role that allyship has on creating a more diverse and equitable society?
0: Yeah. And there's a couple things. When we first started doing this research back in, oh gosh, 2014 or so, 2013, 2014, we... We started thinking about it as developmental relationships. So, mentoring being one of those mentoring relationships, sponsoring, other forms of advocacy and peer relationships in the workplace, and how there's an unequal access to resources, to information, to people's, you know, leaders who have great social capital, mentors who have great social capital, not sharing that. Again, gender just being one component of that, but there are many others, including race, in the workplace. And if we leave it to more kind of grassroots informal mentoring, for example, that people that that affinity bias, right, of where we tend to kind of gravitate toward others who have who look like us, who have very similar experiences, who, you know, we we connect in, in very natural ways that in that way. But the challenge with that is that, well, if we allow that kind of informal grassroots mentoring and relationships to happen like that, then. People of who, who are minoritized or in minority groups in inside of organizations are less likely to get the same kind, same quality, same access to all of these resources that we know are important in developing careers, right? And so we're we're basically handicapping ourselves within our organization, a large part of our, our people. And and so we just went after it from a gender perspective, and that led to the research that we did for Athena Rising and thinking about well, why don't, for example, more men mentor women? And as it turns out, there's a host of reasons why. And and don't give the same quality or kind of mentoring to women. But those, when women do receive that mentoring from, from men and they receive the high quality mentoring, they are more likely to, they make more money, they have more promotions, they're going to go farther in their careers. And that's not because men are better mentors. It's just because we end up, we tend to have more access to power and social capital and influence and other opportunities that are going on in the organization. And so when we share that again, everyone, everyone benefits from it. And so we were thinking about it. That's where we started with Athena rising. It's like, well, how do we get more men to be more deliberate and purposeful one in being inclusive and who they mentor. You could also flip that and say who they're mentored by, because that's just as important. If you think about your mentoring as a network, and I, it, it includes all the people that I mentor, but also the people I mentored by, how inc- how diverse is that? Do, does everybody in that network look like me? And the more diverse it is, again, the more successful we find people are. And so pushing people to be more deliberate in terms of of who's in their network, but then also thinking about the quality and the kind of mentoring and making sure that we're getting, again, the same type of very specific feedback in cases where it's actionable that we can work on to, and to advance our careers that we're we're giving the same kind of kind of sponsoring or advocacy opportunities in terms of opportunities or pushing people forward for stretch assignments or provide the same kind of challenges that lead to career development that are so important so there's a there's a lot that goes into that that part of it the interesting thing that book came out, Athena Rising came out in 2016, and probably remember about a year later, Me Too went really widespread at that point across the world, and it changed the in terms of the work and the conversations we were doing with organizations with leaders, not j- to focus not just on that specific aspect around mentoring and sponsoring, more broadly, how do we show up as allies in the workplace? For everyone, and how does that how does that work? What does it look like? What works best? What are some of the best practices for that? What are the things holding us back from becoming better at doing that and creating more of a culture of allyship as an inclusive? We think about we talk about allyship and inclusive leadership very interchangeably as well. That led to the research we did for Good Guys, how men can be better allies for women in the workplace, and yeah, we've been it's it's amazing the. The turn of events that happened during COVID, also that kind of coincided with the, you know, Me Too was still was still going pretty strong at that point. The murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement, Asian hate. I mean, all of these things built to a crescendo to the point where allyship and inclusive leadership suddenly became really influential and important in many organizations and leaders, senior leaders, CEOs were being held accountable, taken to task for their, for what they were doing or not doing in many cases within their organization. So it it's become very important and I, I think a great opportunity for us to to really advance the message.
1: Absolutely. A worthwhile message to push ahead. So looking ahead, how do you see your research continuing to evolve and make a difference? What are you targeting?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. One of the things that we... We focused on in our research for good guys that was kind of an eye-opener and really was just one of the things we've kind of had in the back of our mind to, to work on next was really around the idea that this notion that gender equity in the workplace really starts at home and 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 the reason a couple of reasons why we we think that's really important. One is that we know that socializing the next generation, Right? And so if we're, we're going to move faster toward creating gender equity in the workplace, which I don't know, depending on the estimates you, you look at now, it's 100, 200 years in, down the road, If we're going to move faster on that, then we've really got to move the next generation faster too. And so how we do that at home is really important. One of the aspects is that women have done for many, many decades, two to three times the amount of domestic labor, unpaid work at home as men. And most of us live in dual career. We work and have dual career families these days. That is the norm. And so if we're going to make, you know, it equitable for everyone at work, and that means our partners too, then we've got to, we've got to be supportive of our partners at home. And so for, for men in this case, who are partnered with a woman in a heterosexual family that, Hey, you're, you're doing your fair share of the domestic tasks and labor, the caregiving. And, and it's not just the, I, I, th- I think of it as kind of the the logistical tasks out there, but also kind of the emotional labor and cognitive labor of keeping track of things. And that again, tend to fall more to women, keeping lists, organizing and planning for the family and events and vacations and you name it. We've got to do our fair share of that part too. Really interesting to see the research though. The impact that it has when men show up in more egalitarian relationships at home and are very visible in doing this work and also with their children, if they have children in this case, then for our boys, we find they have a more inclusive perspective of gender roles when they go off into the workplace. So thinking about how they're going to balance or, or combine work and family roles is very different from the more traditional notions. And then for the do- our daughters, they're more likely to persist in their careers to reach their career goals and enter into non-traditional professions and industries. So those more male dominated traditionally male industries like finance and STEM, government, the military, you name it, more likely to get to, towards gender parity and create equity in those faster that way. The other aspect that I think was was really important and we're really interested in looking at next is how when men show up as more, again, these more equitable allies at home, how it changes their behavior in the workplace. And we saw some examples of this, and this is what we want to explore more, of how it changed behavior and how they went about thinking about work and flex work and remote work, the nature of work. And this is this is research that we had done before COVID. So certainly there's an opportunity here now with COVID and how organizations are wrestling with What does the future of work look like in terms of how we work, where we work, when we work, and combining work and family in ways that we know we can do differently than we did before COVID?
1: It's fascinating to hear about the changing dynamics, whether it's in home or at the workplace, or even more broadly in today's world. And in this intensely competitive society, what skills or traits would you say are vital to thrive in today's complex and integrated
0: world? Yeah, and that's that's another great question. I And I think this is one we talk about a lot from an inclusive leadership perspective that, you know, I think back to like the 20th century and a lot of the traditional leadership development that we did, leadership education we did, that it was a very, very different way of managing and leading people in organizations. And it was much more of a kind of a self-centered focus, which was, again, I think just a sign of the times of the 20th century and much more about kind of command and control of being in control of resources and people and being more directive and assertive in that way, the sense that you you developed experience and knowledge and you had all the answers at that level, right? And then you could, once you built that, you could, then you could go to the next level. What we find is, though, that that doesn't work as well today in the 21st century workforce. And part of it is, one, is our workforce is different. We have a much more diverse workforce than we've ever had, and it's going to continue to become more diverse. So in leading and managing people and understanding what how to motivate people differently, that's a different set of skills, and that requires more around emotional intelligence and self-awareness and interaction with others and how you get how you're influencing people and how you show up in those and again those are skills that require things like like humility and that could be intellectual humility and understanding what i don't know and and using and understanding that i need a diversity of experiences of people of backgrounds of skill sets because i can't do it all i don't have all the answers and in this world today where information Overload is it's just so common, and technology and information is it's replacing itself at such fast rates today. I think I saw one with medicine. the technology what we know about medicine today changes about every two months. It's advancing that. it's doubling that fast. And, and that's just one one example. So that requires a different set of skills in terms of leadership, and it's not the skill sets that we used to teach and and to educate and leverage as for leaders today we are looking for humility we're looking for authenticity we're looking for those that emotional intelligence out there the ability to understand of how to lead in a more inclusive and collaborative way those are the things also by the way that the research shows us that people who have those skill sets are the ones who are more likely to go further in their careers and that's if you look at the, some of the CEO research out there those skill sets are the ones those traits are the ones that those people have are more likely to have today oh by the way a lot of that are things that have been things you know traits and skills that women have have been leading with for a long time and now i think as for the men out there it's it's something that we're all beginning to you know Hey, we need to sit up and take notice of this and and see what we can learn from that and how we can become better leaders in our organizations
1: absolutely thanks for that
0: and as we close our conversation thanks
1: again for taking the time for leaders of today of the future looking to make a positive impact in the community or the workplace any words of wisdom based on your experience
0: yeah so another quick question let me think about that one for a second i think I think there's more opportunity today than than we've ever had, and and it's in different ways because we used to be involved in a lot of community organizations before, but today there's more opportunity, I think, because of the, the way that we're more globalized and connected across the world and the ability to affect and make positive change because we are more interconnected than we've ever been, I think is is something that i think we take for granted maybe in some ways and other ways we because we're not we're not seeking out those opportunities and understanding how we can make it have a more positive impact or or recognizing i think the other part of it is i think from a leadership side of things that the interactions that you have the the relationships that you have with others in different groups um you know you you can have a positive impact but you in some cases you may not ever see that you may not be aware of it that it happens. Sometimes that, sometimes you might hear years later, or somebody comes up and says, "Hey, you know, when when you did this for me back three years ago, or whatever it was, it really made a difference in my career, and my life, and in a variety of different ways." And they can, and they will explain those. and And I, I think back to those now and and remember that, yeah, it's, you just have to. There's a little bit of the the giving back and recognizing that you don't always learn right away what the impact is that you're having sometimes you just have to believe that yeah it's making a difference and it's useful and valuable in a variety of different ways and so again finding opportunities to to leverage the skill sets that you have your strengths and how can you apply those in in other settings beyond just the uh, the traditional workplace and, and maybe your traditional family
1: wonderful Thank you once again for taking the time. It's been really great to have you on the podcast.
0: Thanks, I enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thanks leaders for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us five stars and let us know what you'd like to hear more about. Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Unbox Leadership. That's U-N-B-O-X Leadership. Until next time, I'm Vedith Huett. signing off. Forge Forward.